Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Home Life in Tokyo, as it was in the early 1900s and also during its earlier years. Tokyo has changed a lot over the centuries, and it's hard to believe how different it was even 100 years ago. And here we are, hosting the 2021 Olympics. It's a great read, and I hope you enjoy it. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to listener Lindell Smedley for your lovely message through the website. I'm so glad you find the podcast helpful and that it helps you fall back to sleep when you wake during the night. Thank you to everyone who continues to listen to and support the podcast. I'm truly grateful for the trust that you have put in me to allow you to get a good night's rest. If you find the podcast beneficial, I'd love for you to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Home Life in Tokyo Chapter 1 Tokyo, the Capital Tokyo is the youngest of the great capitals of the world. For it was only in 1868 that the present emperor of Japan left the old city where his ancestors had for centuries lived in seclusion and made the shogun's stronghold his new home and seat of government. It was a politic move because though the shogun had already resigned his office, and surrendered the absolute authority he had exercised in the government of the country. There were still many among his followers who were unwilling to give up their hereditary offices. Had the emperor then remained in Kyoto, and there established his government, it would have been comparatively easy for these discontented partisans of the shogun to foment an insurrection in the largest city of the empire, which might assume serious proportions before it could be quelled, especially in those days when the means of communication and transportation were yet very primitive Hence, it was decided to remove the central government to the possible hotbed of disaffection, and, 
by the strong arm of the newly constituted administration to nip in the bud all signs of rebellion. And so the emperor and his court forsook the city, which had been the nominal capital for a thousand years, and took up their abode in the great military centre, which was known as Yido. But when the emperor arrived at the old castle of the shogun, he gave it the name of Tokyo, or the eastern capital, to distinguish it from the late capital, Kyoto, which is on that account also spoken of by the people as Seiko, or the western capital. But Yido itself was not very old. Towards the close of the 15th century, a renowned warrior, Ota Dokan by name, built a little castle in the village of Yido. Not long after his death, his family became extinct and others succeeded to the lordship of the little castle. A century later, Tokugawa Iyasu, one of the most powerful daimo or territorial lords at the time, became master of the eight provinces east of the Hakone Mountains and was on the point of establishing his government of Kamakura, the capital of the first line of Shogun, when he was persuaded by his suzerain, the Taiko Hideyoshi, who is best known to history for his invasion of Korea, to set up his headquarters at Dokan's castle town, which possessed great strategic advantages over Kamakura. Accordingly, in 1590, Iyasu came to the village of Yido and saw that the castle could be developed into a formidable fortress. At once he set to work, rebuilding it on a gigantic scale, bounded on the north and west by a low line of hills, on the south by the bay of Yido, and on the east by marshes. It was in those days of bows and arrows and hand-to-hand fights almost impregnable. Behind the hills lay the wide plain of Musashino, across which no enemy could approach unobserved, while it was equally difficult to make a sudden attack upon the castle from the sea or over the marshes. The castle covered upwards of 500 acres within its inner walls. The swamp was reclaimed, and merchants, artisans, priests, and men of other crafts and professions were induced by liberal offers to settle in the new city. The reclaimed land soon became the principal merchant quarter. In 1603, Iyasu became shogun, or military suzerain, of the country. The shogun was appointed by the emperor, 
who delegated to him the civil and military government of the land. The emperor made the appointment nominally of his own will, but in reality he was compelled to confer the title on the most powerful of his subjects. It was to Iyasu but a confirmation of all the influence he already wielded as the most formidable of all the territorial barons, and thus fortified by the imperial nomination, he began at once to take measures for the general pacification of the country, which had for years been plunged into a terrible civil war. His first step was to consolidate his power and it was done with such success that the shogunate remained in his family for 265 years. This predominance of his family was in a great measure due to his skill in providing against those evils which had wrecked former lines of shogun. All these dynasties had fallen through coalitions of powerful daimyo in different parts of the country, and the consequent inability to cope with insurrections, which broke out simultaneously in various quarters. To prevent such coalitions, Iyasu created small fiefs around the territories of Great Daimo, and gave them to his own adherents who acted as spies upon these daimo and frustrated any attempts they might make at conspiracy. The territories along the Great Highway between Yido and Kyoto he also apportioned among his followers so that he always had a ready access to the Emperor's city and could, without difficulty, control every movement of the imperial court. Another plan he formed towards the same end, though it was not actually carried out until the time of his grandson. This was the compulsory residence of the Daimo in Yido, for a certain term every other year. The time for reaching and leaving the city was fixed for each daimo by the shogun's government. Their wives, with rare exceptions, remained permanently in Yido and were practically hostages at the shogun's court. The effect of this last measure was the increased prosperity of Yido. All the daimo were compelled to keep a house in the city. They built most of their palaces around the castle, and in the same enclosures were erected numerous houses for their retainers. Many daimo had one or more mansions in the suburbs, not a few of which were noted for their size and their beautiful grounds. The most celebrated of these mansions is now the Imperial Arsenal, the garden of which is one of the sites of Tokyo, and another forms a part of the palace of the Crown Prince, 
and is also the place where the annual chrysanthemum party is given every autumn. The building of the Daimos mansions, the number of these lords being at the time about 250, naturally attracted merchants, artisans and other classes of people from all parts of the country and Yido rose before long to be the most flourishing city in Japan. It set the example to all the other cities of the empire, for the Daimo copied in their own castle towns, all that they found to their taste during their forced sojourn in Yido. This leading position which the shogun city held in the feudal days has been retained even in an increased measure by the capital of New Japan. Some idea of the prosperity of Yido may be formed from the fabulous accounts of its wealth current among the country people, who believed that in the main streets of the city land was worth its weight in gold but a more definite proof is to be found in the computations which were made from time to time with respect to its population. Estimates based upon official records in the early years of the shogunate are very incomplete. Thus, we are told that there were, in 1634... 35,419 citizen householders, and 23 years later, as many as 68,051, which would give a citizen population at the rate of 4.2 persons per household of 148,719 and 285,814 respectively, an increase which is obviously too great for so short an interval. The first trustworthy computation is probably for the year 1721, when the citizens and their families were said to aggregate about half a million and the military class with their servants were put a little over a quarter of a million. Priests, street vendors and beggars with whom the city swarmed and did not most likely fall much below 50,000 so that we may without any great error take the total population at 800,000 more than a century later, in 1843, that is, a few years before the outbreak of the dissensions which finally broke up the feudal government, and the total population was calculated from similar sources at 1.3 million, of which 300,000, or nearly one quarter, belonged to the military class. Old European travellers put the population of Yedo at various figures ranging from a million and a half to three million, but the above computation 
is probably as near the truth as we can hope to get it. And in view of the fact that Yido was a dozen years later torn by factions and was practically in a state of civil war, we may safely conclude that its population never exceeded that calculated for the year 1843. In the above-mentioned estimate, the military population of Yido is put at 300,000. It was computed in the following manner. There were in the country 267 daimo, every one of whom had two or more mansions in Yido. The total number of their retainers and servants with their families, in fact, of all who depended for their subsistence upon these barons, was calculated at over 137,000. The immediate feudatories of the shogun, who all lived in Yido, numbered 22,000, and they, with their families and servants, made up 160,000. From these figures, the great influence wielded by the samurai in Yido may readily be inferred. Though Yido thus prospered and the shogun's rule there seemed firmly established, while thousands of samurai were ready to lay down their lives for his welfare, contentment was far from universal in the country. Some of the great daimo, whose ancestors had submitted to Iyasu only because of his overwhelming power, would have gladly raised the standard against his descendants if they had seen any chance of success. They knew that two centuries and a half of peace had enervated the shogun's court and luxurious habits corrupted his government and that it would not be a difficult task to crush him if they could form a coalition against him. But as yet they did not know whom to trust among their fellow daimo, and discontent smouldered, ready to burst out at the first opportunity. And that opportunity came in good time. The arrival of Commodore Perry's squadron and the subsequent conclusion of treaties by the Shogun with the foreign powers are matters of history. Centuries of isolation had lured the nation into the belief that it could forever remain free from all contact with the outside world. The treaties, therefore, came upon it as a rude awakening from its long-cherished dream, and the possible consequences of the opening of the country to foreign trade and intercourse naturally aroused all its fears. A strong agitation arose in denunciation of the Shogun's Act to which the Emperor's sanction had not yet been given, and when orders came from Kyoto to abrogate the new treaties, the enemies of the Yido government saw their opportunity. 
They turned to the sovereign who lived hidden from public gaze in his palace and knew that the salvation of their country could be brought only by the emperor coming to his own again and assuming the direct government of his people. Leaders among these loyalists were the clans of Satsuma and Choshu, two of the most powerful in Japan, which were later joined by those of Heizen and Tosa, and many others. The shogun did his utmost to suppress these risings, but being at length convinced by his utter failure of his own powerlessness, he resigned his office in 1867 and restored the reins of government into the hands of the sovereign. The emperor thereupon made Yido his capital, and to it flocked the men who had helped to overthrow the shogun's government. The small bands of the latter's adherents, who still offered the resistance, were soon overcome. The national government was reorganized by men from the loyal clans. Though the shogun had been denounced for his friendly attitude towards foreigners, the new government was even more cordially disposed towards them. The truth is that though the shogun's enemies were at first all for the expulsion of foreigners out of the country, wiser heads among them soon came to understand that it would not be possible to get rid of these unwelcome visitors and return to the old state of isolation. This conviction was especially brought home to the great clans of Satsuma and Choshu when Kagoshima, the chief town of the former, and Shimonoseki, the seaport of the latter, were bombarded for outrages upon Europeans, won by a British fleet in 1863, and the other by combined squadrons of Great Britain, France, Holland and the United States in the following year, and they saw that only the war for their country to preserve her independence and secure a footing in the comity of nations was to be as strong as these powers and advance in that path of civilization which had given them such a commanding position in the world. But so long as the shogunate stood, they let the anti-foreign agitation take its course. When, however, it fell, and the way was cleared for a reorganized government, they set to remodeling it on western lines. Then commenced that process of national renovation which has astonished the world. With the fall of the shogunate and the reorganization of the national government, the feudal system was doomed. For such a program, as Japan had already sketched out for herself, was incompatible with the medieval form of government. This fact was soon recognized by the daimyo of Satsuma and Choshu, 
who offered in 1868 to surrender their fives. The generous offer was gladly accepted and their example was followed by all the other daimo. But for the time, the ex-daimo were all appointed governors of their respective fives so that they might aid in bringing their former subjects to a full sense of the new condition of things. Three years later, in 1871, the clans were abolished and the whole country was divided into prefectures. The daimo and their retainers received government bonds in commutation of the incomes they had thitherto derived from their fiefs. The substitution of prefectures for clans was made with the object of breaking up the clan bias, which was prejudicial to national unity. For to prevent disaffection or crush open revolt in the provinces, it was necessary to centralise as much as possible the government of the country, and with all its precautions, the new government had to cope with several little uprisings, culminating in the Satsuma Rebellion, which spread over a greater part of the island of Kyushu, and taxed its resources to the utmost. But when this was quelled, the country enjoyed absolute peace. No internal order has since taken place, with the sole exception of a small local trouble in 1884. The result of this centralization was that Tokyo became the center of the whole national life. Men seeking office hurried to it. Students entered its schools. The trades and professions seemed to thrive only in the capital. The measures which the government took at the time tended still further to make Tokyo attractive. For the restoration and the consequent national reorganization were the most part the work of the military class, or rather of the samurai of a few clans, under the guidance of a small group of leaders. The country bowed to the inevitable, but the people had little or no voice in the matter. Whatever drastic measures the government might take, the nation at large could not a word of command throw off the immemorial traditions in which it had been brought up. It failed to realise the drift of the new policy its leaders were entering upon. Consequently, the first and most important duty of the government was to guide its people in the path it had taken. New laws were published with the minute instructions. Schools of all kinds were established on the Western Plan the higher colleges being located in Tokyo, model government factories were built in the environs of the city. In short, nothing that a paternal government could do was omitted to take the people by the leading strings. The higher schools were soon filled, 
their graduates found ready employment. The country was ruled by a huge army of officials, who, taking as they did the place of the old samurai in the popular estimation, commanded respect and deference, often out of proportion to the importance of their posts, which, with the comparatively high salaries they enjoyed in those days, made government service the most attractive of all occupations. In fact, in the early days, Tokyo may be said to have derived its enhanced prosperity from the superabundance of its officials. Then too, men of the legal, medical, and other professions all opened practice in Tokyo, only in recent years, when every rank has been overcrowded in the city, have they sought fresh fields in the provinces. It was not long, however, before the evils of excessive centralization began to make themselves felt, and when the task of national reorganization was fairly complete, steps were taken towards decentralization. Prefectural assemblies were opened in 1881 as a preliminary measure to the establishment of the National Assembly. In 1888, local self-government was granted to provincial cities, towns and villages and everything was done to promote local prosperity. The close of that year 1890 saw the opening of the National Diet. The war with China in 1894-95, and that with Russia ten years later, brought on in either case a sudden activity in all departments of commerce and industry, and gave a great impetus to railway enterprise. Many bogus companies, it is true, were formed at the same time, and their collapse was a serious setback to the national economy. But the undoubted increase of commercial and industrial enterprises has served to relieve the pressure of population upon Tokyo. Osaka, for instance, which has for centuries been a great commercial centre, has within the last few years become as great a centre of industry with a population exceeding one million. Kyoto, the old capital, remains somnolent, but Nagoya and the trade ports of Kobe and Yokohama are forging ahead. In short, though Tokyo as the capital will probably remain the largest city in the empire. It cannot be denied that it is not now so far in advance of the rest as it was a few years ago. This rise of great provincial cities is a necessary result of the growth of manufacturing industries which are bound. If the country is to prosper, to take the place of agriculture which is too limited in its scope in a country of such a moderate extent as Japan. 
It is indeed but a repetition of the rise of the great provincial towns like Birmingham, Sheffield, and Manchester in England in the last century. Still, Tokyo must take the lead in all that pertains to the adoption of Western civilization. Osaka and other manufacturing cities will develop the inevitable but unwelcome phases of Western industrialism. Already the labour problem looms before us, and the government must before the long legislate on the question. There are also signs of socialistic agitation, but these questions do not affect Tokyo so seriously as other cities for the factories on its outskirts are comparatively few, and the land is too valuable for resident purposes to be occupied by manufactories. Tokyo will remain what it has always been, the home of the best classes in every department of national life. It will always indicate the higher watermark of oriental culture and occidental influence, here, as nowhere else, will be seen that antagonism of the two, the pressure of Western customs and ways of life, following the heels of the sciences, and practical knowledge we are eagerly imbibing from the West and the resistance of Oriental traditions and usages, which refuse to admit a title more than is absolutely necessary to bring the country to a material and intellectual equality with the foremost nations of the world. To those who look below the surface, nothing is more interesting in viewing the progress of Japan than this combination of radicalism and conservatism. The Japanese, for all his apparent love of innovation, still retains that stolid self-satisfaction usually associated with the oriental mind, though it is no rarer in the West. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you enjoyed listening to it, but I also hope that you're feeling a little tired. If you're not quite tired yet, you're welcome to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.